Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gaughan, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, Dave Filoni, and John Favreau, as well as the rest of the team at Lucasfilm, have dreamed up over the past 40-plus years. I'm entertainer writer Jim Hill, and my co-host Brian Gaughan and I are recording this week's show on Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, and Brian is just back from spending, what, five days, six days down in San Diego? It, it, uh, when did you do load-in, uh, you and Bill? Well, um, we went down there on Tuesday okay. because that's the only time, if, if we did the, the preview day, which mm -hmm. was Wednesday, yep. we're, we're exhausted because mm -hmm. um, we're getting to be old. Mm -hmm. So we always go down there Tuesday. We usually get there about 1.30, o'clock. We're set up by 5 o'clock. We have a nice rest, and then we come in oh, about noonish on Wednesday. We see all our friends, and we get ready for the preview. Mm -hmm. And it was it was really an amazing show this week mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of people came from all over the world it was amazing we met people from austria mm -hmm. we met people from italy from spain from mexico from korea everywhere it mm -hmm. was amazing how these people came in bill did really well he sold out of of most of his stuff and three or four of his major paintings Mm -hmm. um, Bill Stout, by the way, if, if, and a couple people came by. Mm -hmm. um, somebody came by on Wednesday, and I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was disappointed that I didn't get me to meet them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, um, another family that listens to us mm -hmm. from San Francisco, they came by, and um, they, well, they almost saw me get killed, to tell you the <laughs> truth. Okay. <laughs> what happened was, behind our booth in another booth, somebody tripped over boxes which sent these panels that Bill has his paintings on, mm -hmm. sent them crashing into my back. And Ooh. I'm talking to them, and I see this horror on mm -hmm. these six people's or five people's faces. Mm -hmm. And without even thinking, I put my hand behind me mm -hmm. to stop what's ever falling, and it hits my hand. And mm -hmm. everybody's panicking now, thinking that I was like knocked out. And at this time, this was, I think, on Saturday, and mm -hmm. I had met a lot of people and had made a lot of friends in the mm -hmm. different booths and stuff, and everybody came running and then said, and then Bill said, the first thing he said was, you should sue. <laughs> <laughs> so uh. but I went over to the booth and I said, mm -hmm. listen, everything's fine. I go, Bill wants to sue, but you know, I don't want to, so everything's, everything's great. Nobody got hurt. Okay. But that was a lot of fun. But like I said, I met a lot of great people from all over the world doing different things. And it, again, it's 150,000 people of, that are your friends that mm -hmm. have everything that you have in common. And because of the strikes, mm -hmm. there were no really big panels. Mm -hmm. There were some celebrities, mm -hmm. like um, Jamie Lee Curtis was there, but she was there promoting her book. Oh, okay. So there was things like that, mm -hmm. but mainly because of that, everybody came on the the floor, and this was the first Comic Con that mm -hmm. was done after COVID. There have mm -hmm. been two before this, but they were all like people had to wear masks and stuff like this. Yep. That and this was you know 
everybody just was having a great time and they were ready to spend money and they did and they spent money not only with bill but Mm -hmm. on on everybody and everybody i talked to had a great show Mm -hmm. and um i had a lot of fun and you know this is what i do i abandon my family for six days out of the year and um nobody misses me (laughs) i know that's not true no, okay, so you guys loaded up on Sunday night and drove home? Yeah, yeah. Usually there was a, a party done by graffiti mm-hmm. t-shirts, but he mm-hmm. has retired, oh. and he didn't have a party, so Bill and I, mm-hmm. we were done. It took us, we're, it closed at 5, we were done at 7, mm-hmm. and I started on the road at mm-hmm. 7. For some strange reason, the 5 freeway was empty. Wow! Yeah, because so, I, I, I was, I think I was making the joke to Drew the other day because he was down there for Paramount. He, he and Charles Hood did the uh, presentation on Thursday in a Hall H for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, Mutant Mayhem. They were the MCs for that. But I was making the joke that that typically when you leave San Diego at the end of Comic Con and get on the five. It's like the Exodus scene in the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments. You know, always surprised not to see, you know, a, a camel <laughs> moving slowly next to me on the five. Oh, I went to the the um, Haunted Mansion party. Oh, and? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was fun. It was, mm-hmm. you know, basically it was just a place to have free drinks. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a little room mm-hmm. that was like the dining room mm-hmm. in the the show and i put some pictures up there they had a hidden mickey and i was with my friend i go look come here he mm-hmm. goes hidden mickey he goes i knew there was a reason why i brought you here all right so uh, toward that end folks before we get to the actual news we have to talk about our sponsor and we actually have some news in regard to that because uh looking at lucasfilm now has a new sponsor uh, Ooh, for years cool. now, uh, Storybook Destination has been the sponsor of this podcast. And uh, don't get me wrong, folks, I loved working with Tammy Whiting and the rest of the team there. Uh, they're good, good people who really know their jobs. But uh, let's face it, folks, the only constant in life is change. And with that in mind, well, we've changed sponsors on the show. Looking at Lucasfilm's new sponsor, but though it's going to seem very, very familiar, uh, and that's because it's Turing Plan's <gasps> own travel agency. Uh, there we go. So those very obviously knowledgeable folks can now help you book your very next trip to Walt Disney World, plus toss in a free subscription to Turing Plan. So if you're headed to Florida anytime soon, please check them out at TuringPlans.com backslash travel. In hindsight, I'm, be, I'm beginning to wonder if perhaps Dr. Jones should have checked in with the Turing Plans <laughs> folks before he headed off in search of the Dial of Destiny because Indy's latest adventure has not gone according to plan. At least it, as far that's as far as the folks at Disney Studio thought it would go. And we're now 25 days after this James Mangold film was first released to theaters. Here in the States, Dial of Destiny has only sold $158 million worth of tickets, an additional $176 million overseas, with a worldwide box office total of $335 million, which if somebody came to the house and handed me a bag with $335 million in it, I would be very happy. But if you talk with the folks at Disney, they've only just begun to talk about Yes, there's what we spent to make this movie, and then there's the, what we spent 
to make the version of Indy 5 that Steven Spielberg was going to make. And we'd started construction of sets and then he walked away from the project in February of 2020. That $335 million only covers the, the production costs of this movie, not promotion. So they are still very, very much in the red. I don't know if you've been catching the drumbeat lately of this is Disney's time in the barrel. So, for example, Forbes just ran an article on how much it cost Disney and Marvel Studios to make Secret Invasion, and that was $212 million. But featured in with the story that Forbes did was also the amount that Disney spent on pre-production of the new, the upcoming Star Wars limited series, Acolyte. Oh, really? Yeah, $49 million on pre-production. Not production, pre-production. If you think about what Barbie and Oppenheimer did just this past weekend, which really put in stark contrast how Indy 5 is doing. Well, that was a fluke. Because I don't know if those films would have done as well if they weren't released on the same day and somebody had this genius thing to say, well, if you're going to see Oppenheimer, then juxtapose it with Barbie. And I don't think Oppenheimer would have made $77 million if it wasn't for this whole Barbieheimer thing going on. I... I think they both really benefited because look, most films are underperforming at the box office right now. Uh-huh. There's very few, and the ones that are are not repeats. Mm-hmm. They're not um, sequels. Mm-hmm. They're not remakes. They're original films. Those are the films that are doing very well. Mm-hmm. What's happening is they're going to wait a month or two, and Indiana Jones is going to be on Disney+. Plus. When you're dealing with a situation like this, you want to have a reason why this happened. And yes, as you just suggested, you know, there's a lot of folks who frankly are, well, I know Dial of Destiny is going to show up on Disney Plus, so I can wait. On the other hand, I was just talking with somebody in promotion and they had kind of an interesting theory. When Indy 4 opened in 2008, over its opening weekend, it did over $100 million. Whereas Indy 5 did 60. And what they put out there is, well, think about it. For Indy Four, George Lucas was an actual hands-on producer on that thing. And Steven Spielberg was the director. Okay, and these guys had been working on this franchise with Harrison Ford since 81. That trio, you know, walked out and did promotion together. And it was like, look at the secret sauce. You're getting Spielberg and Lucas and, and Harrison Ford all together on one project. Whereas with Dial of Destiny, I mean, Lucas was basically a producer in name only on this project. He was not hands-on when it came to story. Spielberg went from being the director to just a producer, which left only Harrison Ford, the, the last man standing of the original trio that made these films possible, that made these films special. And, and without Spielberg and Lucas out there also doing publicity for this movie... That, the project just did not have the heat that even Kingdom of the Crystal Skull did back in 2008. Now, we are a ways out from the end of summer, folks, when people will be doing the final tallies on on box office. And as what's been going on with 
Pixar's Elemental. I mean, wrote that off when that initially opened, that the Peter Sonfam was the lowest domestic opening for a Pixar film to date. But that's continued to chug along this summer, more to the point, you know, it became this huge hit in Korea. So by the end of the summer, that's going to be a different story that people are talking about. But when it comes to Dial of Destiny, <laughs> what I was hearing from one exec at Disney, it's like, thank God for the Flash. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because at the end of the summer, that's going to be the story about, well, what was the biggest disappointment this year? Oh, the Flash. Absolutely. But you know, the folks at Disney, it's like, oh, this thing just keeps biting us in the butt. Did you see the lawsuit that gets filed against Lucasfilm? Because there's a backpack company, I want to say the Frost River Company. Yep. I guess they use the backpack without giving them any credit or without permission. They just <laughs> grabbed it off the shelf or something. That that and you know what? That usually doesn't happen. No, if, I, if somebody on a on a I've worked on film mm-hmm. and I know that everything that is is on film is always mm-hmm. cleared. Yep. So it's weird that somebody just grabbed something. Maybe they made a backpack that looked like it. Well, uh, what's interesting is the story is they pulled all of the identifying marks off of it. So that first of all, <laughs> that kind of upset the Frost River folks because you know they would have right. loved people to go, oh, that's our, you know, where can I get that bag? And then I guess when they got asked by folks who, who made the bag, they made the mistake of crediting the bag to Frost River's rival, a, a company called Filson. And so, oh. it was, oh. so yeah, that's dogging them. Then there's Karen Allen, who... Uh, I know. Where she um, said the Spielberg version, mm-hmm. she was more involved and she did not like that she was hardly involved in this one but whether it, it is or i i thought her scene was wonderful was delicious was really cute and clever and a good way to end end the film but nobody's arguing that point but when spielberg was writing heard on it i guess karen got to see a few of the scripts in fact what's kind of interesting right. is david cope who worked for a time on uh, indy 5 mentioned that it was actually one of the reasons that spielberg walked away from the project that there were certain storylines, certain ideas that he kept wanting to be put into the film. And it's one of these things where the term that was was used was unworkable. And it's like Steven Spielberg came up with unworkable ideas. Did someone at the studio not want to do them? I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like, that's an interesting piece of language right there but evidently when when you know he just could not get his take on where dr jones would be at this point in his life and his career into the the actual shooting script of the movie Spielberg decided yeah i don't want to direct this do we know what that was is, I, is I, there i am working on it okay i remain ever hopeful because again especially <laughs> now in the middle of the actor strike and the the writer's strike, and, and things are, are getting kind of mean out there. I would honestly be surprised if we don't have a copy of the early, early version of Indy 5 bubble up in the next couple of months. I, I would actually be shocked if that doesn't happen. But anyway, getting back to what Karen was saying, as I said, you know, Hollywood Reporter, she said when Stephen was still going to direct the movie, I had an opportunity to read a few of the scripts, and 
knew that Mary was going to be much more involved in that version of the story. But when Stephen left and James, uh, uh, James Mangold, the guy, the guy who eventually directed Dial This and after Spielberg left the project, well, he hired new writers. And I knew then that there was going to be this whole new approach to the project. And next thing I know, I'm reading a script that told the Dial of Destiny story. And of course, I was disappointed. I thought I would be a major part of this film. And that's just not the direction they decided to go. Did you see her explanation as to why they opted to go this route? That I think they had some problems in trying to resolve what to do with Mutt because Shia LaBeouf was not coming back. And in order to deal with that character not being on the canvas, they they decided to create this story where Mutt had been killed in the war, which then drove a wedge between Indy and Marion. I mean, it included, look, look, I, I, I was happy when Indian and Marion came back together at the end of the movie, and I liked the, how that scene referenced the scene in Raiders where these two characters came together, but that said, I still wish that Marion had a bigger part in Dial of Destiny. Now, um, the whole Henry Mutt Williams, a.k.a. Henry Walton jo- Jones III, Marion and, and Indy's uh, son, he was supposed to be born uh, out of wedlock, in July of 1938. So, if we follow the story logic for Dial of Destiny, which was is largely set in late July, early August of 1969, if this wound between Mary and Indy has to be fairly new. So, if you work that math, Mutt would have to have been killed in Vietnam in the winter of 68-69. Here's my problem with that. The men who were drafted to go to Vietnam were pulled out of a pool of healthy males age 18 to 26. And Mutt was older than that when he died. He was 30. Well, 30 when he dies in Vietnam, supposedly. And usually what you were, uh, usually it's like the younger men were Mm -hmm. going there. Mm-hmm. Um, were being drafted, but there's a there's a point in it where it's a it's a line where Indy says, mm-hmm. "I didn't want him to go, but of course, mm-hmm. with a son and a a, a father, he went mm-hmm. anyway." Okay, uh, but here's my problem. Mutt, as he was introduced in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, think about it. He literally rolls into the scene on a motorcycle dressed like Marlon Brando was in The Wild Ones. And, right. and, and for those of you who don't know, The Wild Ones, famous Stanley Kramer-produced film, uh, released at theaters in December of, of 53. Brando plays biker Johnny Stabler. And, and there's a line famous from that film to the effect of... Mildred, I, I want to say a waitress character goes to Johnny. It's like, hey, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And Johnny's response is, well, what do you got? What do you got? So here's Mutt, this would-be rebel biker. That's the guy who volunteers to go to Vietnam? Well, they could have done another thing. What if he went to Vietnam to protect temples or, or some kind of um, cool stuff that he was raised with Indy to do. I mean, what if it, what if there was something? Oh, they okay. They just said he was killed there. Yeah, and I say this as a guy who volunteered to join the service back in '83. Did four years in the army. That story decision, killing Mutt off screen, 
by having him volunteer to go into the Vietnam War. And, and remember, we, we previously have introduced this character as somebody who's adventurous, nonconformist, who rebels against authority. I'm sorry, that doesn't scan. I mean, look, it's not the main reason the Dial of Destiny stumbled at the box office, but it's one of many little things. And, and speaking of little things, when Brian and I get back from this break, we are going to talk about the Star Wars-themed keepsake ornaments that Hallmark had just brought to the market this year. We also might have some news in regard to Mr. John Boyega. Okay, uh, Brian, earlier in the show, you were referring to having to make a run to Target. On the other hand, Nancy and I, tomorrow, we have to head out on our, our shopping related errands. Uh, we're going to our local Hallmark store because Nancy has something to return there. And while she's handling that transaction, I'll be over in the keepsake aisle eyeballing the Star Wars stuff because I don't know. Have you seen, and I want to get the name of this right. Okay, it's the Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Into the Carbon Freezing Chamber Ornament with light, sound, and motion. Yeah, it's not an ornament. It's it's a basically, it's a scene put together. And it's it's got animation in it. It's got um, mm -hmm. lights and sounds. And basically, you see him go down and then comes up and he is in the carbonite. They had a whole booth at the Comic-Con mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the, the ornaments. And mm -hmm. by the time I got over not over mm -hmm. there, not only was that one sold out, but mm -hmm. nearly everything else was sold out. Well, again, they know the audience that, that they're playing to. And oh, yeah. by the way, uh, this ornament got introduced, uh, hit store shelves on July 15th. $64.99 all by itself. And in order to get it to to play properly... You need an additional fourteen ninety nine power cord for your tree. Oh so, no! So you are what? What, what is that? That's eighty dollars in. You know, just so Wait, you. Is it? This is like I the, love you. This I is know. like the the yeah. airlines. They keep on adding fees that we don't know what they mean. They just keep mm -hmm. on adding on things. Here, buy this for seventy dollars. But if you want it to work, you have to spend mm -hmm. another twenty dollars. I don't yeah, get that. I know it's the age we live in. But on the <laughs> other hand, you know, face it, there are people who paid. Gladly oh, absolutely, this because and it, I would it, probably be one of those people. Well, I, again, the, the, this ornament, this am, this Empire Strikes Back ornament, so loud in many locations around the country. That's actually one of the reasons I'm I'm headed to the Hallmark thing with Nancy tomorrow, just to see if we still have it locally. And uh, by the way, uh, you know, if if you prefer your Star Wars of a more modern era, they have the a Mandalorian. Uh, I think this one's Grogu's Jetpack Adventure, so it's Mando carrying a uh, baby Yoda but again that's going to set you back $24.99 and then because this year we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Wars 6 there are five different Return of the Jedi ornaments there is a drink serving R2-D2 there is a Leo with Wicket the Ewok there is Jabba's sail barge and then the desert skiff that well, the plan was to push, you know, Luke Skywalker into the Sarlacc pit, but that, that kind of went south. Is there a Princess Leia in her bathing suit? I think not. Is she part of the Jabba thing? I mean, that those things always sell like hotcakes. Well, uh, and, and what's interesting is uh, Brian just brought up there, the fifth in the series is a Jabba on his throne in his palace. In fact, it includes a salacious crumb. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, but that one, uh, whereas the first four Empire or ornaments I was just talking, or excuse me, uh, Return of the Jedi ornaments I was just telling you about, those are twenty four ninety nine. The Talking Jabba, that's going to set you back forty nine ninety nine, and I bet oh, you wow. you got to have that cord too. No matter how bad the Star Wars movies do or mm-hmm. good, mm-hmm. how much do they make in merchandise a year? Do we know the figures, and doesn't most of that go directly into? Lucasfilm Disney's pocket. I mean, there's no middlemen with those those things. You have to understand that that companies license. No, I understand things. that, but it's it's different than. I mean, we we hear about how much movie it makes overseas, but mm. I heard Disney doesn't get a lot of that money, especially in China. I mean, they're yeah, lucky yeah. if they get a few yen mm-hmm. for the most yeah. part. To circle back to the the retail aspect, when you're somebody that, for example license something we were just talking about baby yoda that if you license something with the the real yoda as home depot has done for this this holiday season in fact they have what they call their holiday yoda and that goes for 199 dollars now, a piece. now it, what, it's not an inflatable it's an actual like animatronic this is the thing. It's got a, a lifelike servo motor powered head and a mouth that moves realistically. It also has an LED lightsaber in authentic Yoda green uh, that it waves back and forth. And But again, note how they described it, Holiday Yoda. Because what's kind of interesting in our Haunted Mansion holiday world, this is something you can use for two holiday seasons because... It comes with, for example, a witch's hat you can put on Yoda for Halloween. It even comes with a little faux Halloween sign that reads, Beware of the dark side, you must. Oh. Once Halloween is over, you can now dress Yoda in his Christmas outfit, which I believe comes with a Santa hat. Well, so it, it comes with the Christmas too, so it's either or? That is my understanding. Oh, cool. So. By the way, you mentioned inflatables. Yeah. Home Depot this year also has a brand new Darth Vader inflatable that comes with a tombstone. So I'm assuming Ooh. that's Halloween, not Christmas. Likewise, there's a, a new six-foot-tall Mando and Baby Yoda inflatable. And yeah, I already have one of those. Mm-hmm. I think each year they come out with ones a little different. And the one I had was the first year where mm-hmm. Mando's standing there and he's got um, Baby Yoda. And Baby mm-hmm. Yoda's got a pumpkin but it's the helmet of the mandalorian oh so that's cute i got that's that see because what i do is i have half of my um lawn is mm. is nightmare before christmas and the other half is anything baby yoda i can get a hold of and i have baby yodas that are three feet baby yodas that are six feet you know mandalorians the whole mm-hmm. the whole thing but I, I i just i make it just the mandalorian baby yoda there's no there's no Yodas or um, Darth Vader's. I just, I had to cross the line someplace. Speaking of crossing the line, if we could move to the other side of the lawn that has the nightmare stuff, have you seen this 13 foot tall talking Jack Skellington that's out there? <laughs> I don't know how they can keep it, if it's as skinny as Jack should be, mm-hmm. I don't know how it's not going to topple over. But I got to go check it out. Who, who has, is this also a, a Home Depot? It might be Lowe's. Oh, okay. Got to warn you, this one is pricey as well. It's three ninety nine. Oh, no, 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 no. Anyway, circling back to the Star Wars stuff. Uh, sadly, if you check the inventory, there are no inflatable fins, which uh, for me 
that's kind of sad because I really enjoyed uh, John Boyega's performance in, in the most recent Star Wars trilogy, especially in The Force Awakens. I loved his work with Harrison yeah, Ford in that yeah. movie. Yeah, it was. It, now it's like out of sight, out of mind. I mean, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, Finn's not even in uh, Disneyland, is he? He's not even at Galaxy's Edge. I think. Finn might turn up in okay. Star Tours, oh, the ride film cool. there. Well, again, we're talking about John Boyega here, folks, of course, and, and John has been quite vocal in the past that he also believes that they didn't do right by Finn. And in fact, there's a, a famous quote from the 2020 interview we did with GQ to the effect of, well, look, as an actor, you get yourself involved in a project and you're not necessarily going to like everything, but what I would say to Disney is do not bring a black character in. Market them to be much more important to the franchise than they are and then have them pushed to the side. That's not good. I'm going to say that straight up. And time has passed and John has kind of softened his stance when it comes to the Star Wars trilogy and its missed opportunities. And earlier this year, for example, Boyega sat down with the Times of London and mentioned how, at this point, he's comfortable when he looks back on the experience he had with that Star Wars franchise. And it, it, he, he went on to say, look, for me, Star Wars made the man, in a sense. Uh, the experiences I had on that, the fun times, the good times, the ugly times, the bad times, it makes you who you are as you navigate through the industry. And that has definitely been interesting. Mm. And just this month... Boyega was talking with Tech Radar about Tyrone Got Cloned, which, by the way, got a great review, I want to say, in The Hollywood Reporter just today. That's on Netflix, right? I want to say, yeah. Okay. But he got asked as part of that interview to the effect of, would you consider returning to the Star Wars universe? And Boyega, a very diplomatic response. What he said was, I'm open to all characters and scripts that are enjoyable, that have a great cast attached and a terrific director. So, yes, I'm open to all opportunities, which is good to know given that that Daisy Ridley project, the one that Lucasfilm is supposedly prepping where Ray is now attempting to revive the Jedi Order by teaching the ways of the Force to two young kids, the subplot of this supposedly actually is built around Finn. Oh, cool. As far back as The Force Awakens, it was very strongly suggested that Finn was at the very least Force-sensitive and, and potentially was strong with the Force. And it would it would be lovely after that story thread that got introduced in the first film of the new trilogy that never really then got followed up on. I'd love to see them finally circle back on that. Remember when Damon Linderoff was writing his script for Star Wars? Mm-hmm. His um, story was going to follow, I don't know if he was a stormtrooper, but a black character. And then um, the same director who was going to direct it is now directing the the Ray one. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if they're going to use any, any of those elements that Linderoff brought in mm-hmm. to, you know, bring Boyega back. Because at that time, when Linderoff was talking about his script, Boyega was very negative about coming back to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, they never mentioned if it was going to be a Finn story because I don't think Finn was on the table at the time. But if Finn is on the table, it may, mm-hmm. it may have brought some you know, some of that stuff from it. I mean this in the kindest possible way, but given 
previously got invested in a Taika Waititi Star Wars movie, and then a, a, a Patty Jenkins right. Rogue Squadron movie, and, and only to not see those make it out the door. So it's one of these things where it's like, I look forward to this Ray project actually happening, and then seeing if they actually manage to close the deal with John Boyega to come back and play Finn. Now, when they mention Finn, do they, they mention Rose at all? Is is Rose part of this? All of the information to date is just those two characters. Okay. I also want to stress here, we are still in the middle of the writer's strike. SAG-AFTRA just went out. So a lot of this stuff is now officially on hold. And yes, there will be a lot of talk because people just like to talk and gossip. So... I would love some more solid sources from people who are actually working rather than standing out on picket lines. But you have to remember when you're on strike, you always have to to be thinking about what's the smartest move here. And it's like, we want to look strong. And what helps get that message across is, you know, being in front of cameras. I mean, a bunch of actors, there's a surprise. Uh, but what <laughs> was fascinating to me were the stories earlier this month about how for a time they considered SAG-AFTRA going down to San Diego and picketing outside of Comic-Con International, outside of the, the San Diego Convention Center, because the notion is, well, think about all the cameras that are down there to cover that. And SAG-AFTRA management, after considering that idea, it's like, no, we need goodwill at this point in the strike. And the fact that if we go down there and picket, that just doesn't get us in front of the cameras. That also impacts... Well, all the restaurants and the hotels down there, likewise, all the people who have paid hundreds of dollars, whether it's for badges to get into San Diego Comic-Con or for that matter, to stay in the hotels down there. It's like, no, better we stay up here in L.A. or pick it out in, in New York where, you know, we, we are not disrupting people's vacations or something they save for a year to do. There are other ways to get eyeballs and certainly better ways to get people to be sympathetic to our cause. So, For the most part, there were some people there. There were some celebrities there. I think mm-hmm. actually there was a Indiana Jones panel, and oh. it was basically the people who worked behind the scenes on it, but it mm-hmm. would have been a regular one with the mm-hmm. actors if they were there. But mm-hmm. it was it was it was still pretty packed. Um, it did mm-hmm. really well. Some celebrities down there, Jamie Lee Curtis was down there, but she was pushing her book. And there were, um, you know, other things, mainly because there weren't any major Hall H or Ballroom 20 panels, people all went onto the floor. Mm-hmm. And it was like it used to be before mm-hmm. Twilight. Twilight changed everything. And I think they're going to see a lot of people who were talking there, a lot of people behind the scenes who had their booths out and stuff like that, said they would like it if they would scale back Hollywood because it's not about Hollywood as much as it's about the people who go there. And when Hollywood gets there, they just, they tend to, you know, use this as their little thing to, to promote, but also it, it gets lost in what Comic-Con really used to be. Just think about, the special edition, the, and the, you mentioned the, the, the Comic-Cons, the, the reduced scale Comic-Cons that were held over the last two years or so yeah. where people need to do mass. So people, you know, Comic-Con is still finding its way back. Right. You know, this, and this strike 
kind of interesting that it, you know the, the the vendors on the floor did as well as they did but i i don't know as you know there's so many publicists who love this event for the, well, the but, very but, that, but up until the the 2000s the basic movies were a slideshow you'd have a slideshow and maybe you'd have a you know an arnold would be there or something like that when arnold schwarzenegger did show up it was a big thing because yeah. they had a lot of behind the scenes people but they hardly had any um uh, celebrities but now it's like you know what does it become it's become a fan fest but again you can't unmake this omelet i get what you're saying and i i understand what happened this year but i also understand that there are hundreds of thousands of publicists out there. That, right. You know, no, you're I mean, right. I, they, you're right. And the tidal wave of press releases that came in my inbox just for this version of Comic-Con as compared to years previous where it was like, do you want to talk to this actor? Do you want to talk to yeah. that director? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't see that stopping. Though, if we're talking about stopping... Brian and I obviously loved Andor, the, the limited series that was on Disney+. Plus, and they are now shooting in the UK season two, or they were shooting season two. Uh, Deadline reported earlier this week that because of the SAG-AFTRA actors going out on strike, the members of that film guild, SAG-AFTRA, left the production over in the UK. Now, most actors in the UK belong to equity. I guess there was some discussion in sympathy and to support their brothers in SAG-AFTRA that the equi British equity actors would, would walk out and, and their union was like, look, in no uncertain terms, you can't do that. You have to yeah. stay here. You have to continue to work on the film. And so they're supposedly shooting as many scenes for and or season two that they can do with just the the people who are in equity. But over time, they will run out of scenes and eventually they will have to shut down production. Uh, if we pivot back to Comic-Con, are, are you familiar with the outfit HasLab, as in the folks at Hasbro that do the special projects? Right, right, the, that they do the um, the special toys and stuff for um, yeah. Comic-Cons, basically New York and San Diego. Well, here's the thing. Back in September of 2020, they decided what, that what they would do is they were going to build a razor crest. In fact, it made it as far as I want to say season two before it got blown up, blown right? Up, yeah. it, <laughs> Wasn't that the one where all these people said, oh, we can't wait. We bought the razor crest. We can't wait. It's going to be the be best thing ever done. And then they blew it up and they're going, oh my God, I have yeah. this thing now that doesn't have anything to do with the series. Yeah. But I mean, this thing was huge. It, it's, 20 inches wide, it's oh my 10 and a half inches tall, and then 30 inches long. And the thing is that HasLab basically put out, look, we'll make the Razor Crest if we get 6,000 backers for this project. And, and the thing is, when you signed up for it, you had to agree to pay $349 for this thing. Anyway, long story short, they didn't get 6,000 backers. They got 28,000 backers. <laughs> of course they did. I have to admit, I was kind of shocked myself, but... Mind you, it was supposed to make it uh, be delivered fall of 2021, missed uh, by four months, it, it, but it hit the market in January 2022, but people loved it. So now, what did they announce this past Friday at, at Comic-Con? Haslabs is going to do The Ghost. 
Hera Sindana's oh, wow. starship from Star Wars Rebels. Wait a minute. Do we see the ghost in ah- Ahsoka? Is that going to be in Ahsoka? That it is. So All right. we're going to see a real-life mm-hmm. ghost versus mm-hmm. the animated ghost. Yep. And this yep. is going to be the real-life Ahsoka ghost. That's how I understand it. Now, mind that you. That is so freaking cool. It is. It is. Now, it's also going to be freaking pricey. Uh, it's $500 a piece. Oh, Jesus. At that price point, it's like Haslab said, look, 6,000 backers isn't going to cut it. We need 8,000 people to pledge to buy this thing. And I'm pleased to report that they all are already at 8,000. So it's going to be interesting to when this campaign wraps up uh, to see how many people sign up to get themselves a a ghost that they can then is this going to be out? Dining room is show. this going to be out like right away? I mean, when the Ahsoka comes out, will oh, it God, be available? No. Oh no, no, no. Oh, okay. I want to say it's at least a two-month campaign, and then on the other side of that, they have to go off and manufacture it. So the upside of that, folks, is it means that your dining room table will remain empty well into (laughs) 2024, possibly 2025. And who wants that? (laughs) Well, I have to admit, I'm kind of looking at it. No, I mean, who wants the emptiness? You want it to be filled right away. I could use an empty dining room table. No, right no, now. no. I it mean, just, that, it has to be the whole room. Star Wars motif. You have to have the the Death Star 1 and 2. Who needs a dining room table, to tell you the mm. truth? You've got a kitchen well, table, right? <laughs> You've got a TV tray. Okay, speaking of Star Wars Ahsoka, when Brian and I get back in two weeks' time, it will be two weeks out. From the debut of Star Wars Ahsoka on Disney+. Plus, uh, That debuts August 23rd with two back-to-back episodes. Oh, cool. But I'm sure out ahead of that, there will be plenty Lucasfilm-related stuff to talk about. Till then, Brian, uh, where can our listeners find you on social media? Well, I'm still hanging out at Twitter, but it's mm-hmm. um, Geek with Children. Mm-hmm. And the children is spelled C-H-I-L-D-R-N. And mm-hmm. so I'm still there. But I'm trying to get you know, similar stuff for, um, what's this thing called threads or something? There we go. There we yeah. Go. And there we go. trying to do that. I, I, I did put up a lot on my Instagram and, and people have discovered me and it was a lot of fun, you know, putting up, uh, you know, pictures and, and from Comic-Con and, you know, whatever stuff I found. So that's where you can find me. Where can we find you, Jim? You can find me on the site formerly known as Twitter. I, re- I refuse to call it X. I, I, but again, I'm the guy who still calls Disney's Hollywood Studio MGM. Uh, <laughs> also on Instagram is Jim Hill Media and on uh, over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. Also want to remind you folks, we have a couple of other podcasts here we'd love you to, to, to take a listen to. We've got Disney Dish that I do with Len Testa. We also have uh, Fine Tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor. And Drew, of course, has his own uh, wonderful podcast, Light the Fuse, the official, the official Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible, uh, right. impossible podcast, which he does with Charles Hood. Uh, and then, of course, we have Marvelous Disney, uh, which I do with Aaron Adams, who in turn has his own podcast over on Patreon, 32nd Street, which explores the world of advertising. If you could do Brian and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend not just this show, but the, the other podcasts I just mentioned. Uh, likewise, if you really, really like what you heard here tonight and you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be cool. 
On behalf of Brian, thanks for listening, and we will be back soon.